0: Hey everybody, I'm a little bit late getting this out there, but uh, Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, has just passed us by, and uh, we had a wonderful event for our local congregation. I wanted to go ahead and put this recording out there as another special for people to enjoy and to help to edify and challenge any who consider themselves part of the body of Messiah. Uh, As I usually do, I didn't record it live simply because, uh, for privacy reasons for the most part, and when I'm recording, I tend to act a little bit differently than when I'm not recording. I don't know, some sort of psychological subconscious thing in my mind. Uh, and so I'm recording this separately at a different time and uh, making it not quite as personal to the audience because this is for a wider audience. So, uh, we had a wonderful time. We begin with a, a bit of liturgy. Yom Teru itself, as a feast day. There's really not a whole lot said about Yom Teruah. Uh, In scripture, other than that, it is a day of shouting. That's what that word teruah means. It means shouting, it's a certain type of call. And numbers, uh, uh, nine blasts on the shofar, nine staccato blasts. So, as you go through scripture and as you dig through history, though, you find that Yom Teruah is actually a recognition of kingship. In ancient Israel, regardless of when a king ascended to the throne, his coronation ceremony was always on Yom Teruah. Always on uh, what in Judaism is known as Rosh Hashanah. It's the day of recognition of the king and of that ascension. And so we began with a traditional liturgy. And this was to be a responsive reading done between me and a crowd. But I'll try to replicate that as well as possible for the audience here. Anytime you hear the supreme king, that was something that is said by the audience. And then the rest of it is said by the the leader of the congregation the supreme king he who remembers the rock to assign merit to creatures who is enraged at israel's enemies forever he shall reign the supreme king good is he who abides forever his goodness is forever he measures out the eternal heavens forever he shall reign the supreme king cloaked in light as with a garment with all the luminaries. He who is mighty and luminous, forever he shall reign. The Supreme King, King of the world, who reveals the concealed, who gives speech to the mute, forever he shall reign. The Supreme King, he bears everything. Though he is ancient, he witnesses everything. He scrutinizes everything, forever he shall reign. The Supreme King, his splendor is might. May his right hand's work be mighty. The Redeemer of the stronghold, forever he shall reign. The Supreme King. His holy angels are flames. He calls upon the waters of Rahav. He is close to those who call him lovingly. Forever he shall reign. The Supreme King. There is no sleep for him. There is serenity among his angels. This is the good praise of his concealed ones, the angels. Forever he shall reign. The Supreme King. His might is forever. His splendor is forever. His praise endures forever. Forever he shall reign the Supreme King. And so the holy prayer shall ascend to you, for you are God, you are King. Let us now relate the power of this day's holiness, for it is awesome and frightening. On it your kingship shall be exalted. Your throne will be firmed with kindness, and you will sit upon truth. It is true that you alone are the one who knows and bears witness, who judges. You alone are the one who proves. You alone are the one who knows and bears witness, who writes and seals remembers all that was forgotten. You will open the book of Chronicles. It will read itself, and everyone's signature is in it. The great shofar will be sounded, and a still, thin sound will be heard. Angels will hasten, a trembling, a terror will seize them. They will say, Behold, it is the day of judgment, to muster the heavenly hosts for judgment, for they cannot be vindicated before your eyes in judgment. All mankind will pass before you like members of a flock, like a shepherd pasturing his flock making sheep pass under his staff, so shall you cause to pass, count, calculate, and consider the soul of all the living. And you shall apportion the fixed needs of all your creatures and inscribe their verdict. The Supreme King. And then that was followed by extended shofar blasts. So the Supreme King. My question is, how much do we truly mean that? Yom Teru is a celebration of the king and all of his glory and his honor. Yom Trul, we praise His name, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but how much do we act like this is true in our day-to-day lives? If I examine my own life, I can say for myself that I have been growing in this understanding, but I still have a lot of room to grow. But this is nothing new. This is human nature. This is the way that we think as a species. Don't believe me? Well, the fact is that we find this human frailty throughout the books of the Bible in many different ways. Even in the great heroes of the faith, we find this failing, this failure to recognize God as the king of our lives at all times. So let's look through several examples and see if we can discover ways in which we as humans can elevate things of the world as our king and allow them to occupy the space that is to be occupied solely by our great God and king. Let's look to Moses first of all. Oh, what's that? You say, Moses? This great man who talked to God? This great man who led Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness for 40 years? This great man who oversaw the building of the tabernacle and who's responsible for the first five books of Scripture? This great man. This man. Whatever else Moses was, he was still a man. And we cannot forget that. Was he great in many ways? Yes. Why? Was it because of Moses? No, it was because of God. So let's be very careful placing Moses on a pedestal and holding him up as the one to be mimicked. Now don't get me wrong, Moses is a hero of the faith. He is one who demonstrates for us many wonderful qualities that we as believers would gain much benefit from if we could simply become more like Moses. But Moses was, in the end, only a man, and Moses failed to live up to the high standard of God. I'm sure you know what I'm referring to, if you know scripture at all. Uh, Near the end of his 40 years in the wilderness, there is an event when Moses strikes a rock rather than speaking to it as he was commanded to. At this time, Israel is in the wilderness, near the end of their journey. Miriam has just died, and for some reason, just after this, the water stopped flowing. The people of the second generation, begin complaining at this point. Why were we brought out here? Why are we not in Canaan? This land is desolate and has none of the things that God has promised us. And in their thirst, in their discomfort of the situation that God had placed them in, in their lack of faith that God will take care of them in their moment of dire need, they began to rebel in their hearts. And so Moses goes before God and he prostrates himself before his king. And in Numbers 20, verses 7-12, through And Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron. And you shall speak to the rock before their eyes, and it shall give its water. And you shall bring water for them from the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their livestock. And Moshe took the rod from before Hashem, as he commanded him. And Moshe and Aaron assembled the the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moshe lifted his hand, and he struck the rock twice with his rod and much water came out, and the congregation and their livestock drank. But Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you do not bring this assembly into the land which I give them. So Moses, rather than doing what God said and speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock with the rod twice. And why would he do that? Why would Moses disobey a clearly stated command of God? I think that if we look back at the story of Moses in Exodus, we might find something building in Moses, uh, an understanding of what God wanted from him that may not have been completely accurate. In Exodus 4, Moses begins his objections as to why it is that he is not the guy for the job that God is proposing. And so we read in Exodus 4, 1-2, And Moshe answered and said, And if they do not believe me, nor listen to my voice, and say, HaShem has not appeared to you. And Hashem said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. And beginning with that, God gives three signs that Moses is to perform before the people to demonstrate that God has met with him, that God has, in fact, chosen Moses. And these signs demonstrate God's nature and name to Israel. At the end of this conversation, once all of the objections of Moses have been addressed, we then read this in verse 17, And and take this rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs. Good enough, right? The rod is for the purpose of doing signs. Which signs, though? Just those three signs? Or every sign that is to come from then on? God isn't really clear on that point. If we turn a few chapters later, we'll find that in the course of what is coming in the Exodus, we may catch a glimpse of an attitude building in Moses, in the background lurking under the surface. If we examine the way that Moses acted early on, we'll find scattered throughout the plagues commands to strike or to speak or to simply stretch out his hand. And in many of them, the instructions are followed to a T. In fact, for the first three incidents, the first three plagues, it's Aaron that does the sign. For the second set of three plagues, the signs just kind of happen. They occur. Nobody initiates them. And then for the third set of three plagues, 7, 8, and 9, Moses is the one who actually does something to initiate the plague. So if we start reading in the seventh plague, in Exodus nine twenty two 22-23, And Hashem said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the heavens, and let there be hail in all the land of Mitzrayim, on man and on beast and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward the heavens, and Hashem sent thunder and hail, and fire came down from the earth, and Hashem rained hail on the land of Egypt. In this instance, a command is given to stretch out only his hand toward the heavens, but Moses stretches out his hand with the rod still in it towards the heaven. In the eighth plague, we see the same thing occur. In Exodus 10, verse 12-13, And Hashem said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt, for the locusts to come upon the land of Egypt, and eat every plant of the land, all that is left. And Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and Hashem brought an east wind on the land all that day, and all that night, morning came and the east wind brought the locusts. In these two instances, we see the command for Moses to stretch out his hand, and Moses complies, rod in hand. And if we read on and we follow this thread through the rest of the Torah till Numbers 20, we discover that Moses seems, for the most part, to have learned his lesson after that point. In fact, when they get to the first instance of water coming from the rock, Moses is explicitly commanded to strike the rock with the staff in order to get the water to flow and Moses complies. So what is it that Moses did in Numbers 20 that is so bad? Well, this is a bit of speculation, but I believe it to be informed speculation based on a pattern that we discover in other places. Is it possible that Moses perhaps believes that it is the rod that has special powers? The rod being the one thing that God has used so many times, he sees it as a talisman of power. It is for the working of signs and wonders, after all, right? Could it be that in the wilderness the stories of the Exodus were retold over and over and in the presence of the rod and Moses' own involvement with all of the miracles up to that point? Does Moses believe that God is incapable of working without him? Has he puffed up in his own mind the importance of his own role as a tool and the belief that God needs this tool in order to accomplish his will? Did Moses, this most humble of men, forget his humility for a time and begin to believe what everyone else said about him? Perhaps Moses even begins to think too highly of his own staff, his own tool. Is it possible that Moses had invested this tool with power, believing that God has put power within it, and it contains in itself a measure of power aside from God? Now, this is a pattern of human nature. And we see this thing occurring later, just a few chapters later, with the serpent in the wilderness. God has Moses create a tool as a means of salvation for his people. But then, over time, the people begin to worship the thing that was used as a tool, rather than the one who gave the tool its power. They believed the tool to have a power of its own, and so Israel begins to worship it. For centuries, until the time of King Hezekiah. In Second Kings 18.4, we read, And he, Hezekiah, took away the high places, and he broke the pillars, and he cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent which Moses had made. For until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. And you see the pattern begin to form? The human nature to begin to worship the tool that God has provided, and to place it on a pedestal and bow down to it, rather than recognizing the one who gave the tool in the first place? Let's face it. And we all do the same thing in some ways, don't we? So let's look at another righteous leader of Israel and see if we can discover this same pattern. In fact, who was it that destroyed the bronze serpent of 2 Kings 18? It was King Hezekiah, widely considered by many as one of the most righteous kings in all of Israel's history. A king who was zealous for the worship of Hashem and who would suffer no other gods to be worshipped than Judah. And remember, at this point, Israel and Judah had split and Hezekiah was king only of Judah and not of Israel. But Hezekiah was a truly righteous leader, just as Moses was a righteous leader. In fact, the story of Hezekiah is so important to the story of Israel that his story is told in three separate books of scripture in 2 Kings from chapters 18 through 20, in Isaiah from chapters 36 to 39, and in 2 Chronicles from chapter 28 to 32. Three different books contain the story of this righteous king, and they each have something different to say about him. And when we combine all three, we get a bit of a clearer picture of who Hezekiah was as a man. So the story goes something like this. Hezekiah, when he becomes king, he begins a program of the destruction of idol worship in the kingdom of Judah. Hence those verses that I read earlier, with the destruction of Nehushtan. Alongside this, the Hezekiah is recorded as being righteous and following the commands of Moses that are recorded in the Torah and Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser. Now, Shamaneser, he doesn't like this, and so he brings an army down into Israel, and he defeats Israel, the northern kingdom, and he sends them away into exile. But he kind of gets stalled out there. It's not until eight years later that his successor, Sennacherib, the next king of Assyria, comes down into Judah and defeats all of the walled cities around Jerusalem and lays siege to Jerusalem itself. The siege gets to be desperate, to the point where women in Jerusalem are eating their own children simply to stay alive. Desperate times. Into this, Isaiah the prophet comes to Hezekiah and proclaims a message from God. Tomorrow, grain will be commonplace in Jerusalem and Judah, and Assyria will be defeated. And the next day, 185,000 soldiers of Assyria were dead in their tents, and the siege is broken, and Judah is saved. At this, Sennacherib returns to Assyria, and he is killed by his sons while he is worshipping his own god. Hezekiah, what an awesome king! He sounds so much like Moses in the escape from Egypt. God delivers salvation to his people at their moment of greatest desperation, and the foreign king and his army are decimated, and no one even needed a staff to accomplish this. God did it on his own without a tool even being employed. Some time passes and Hezekiah gets sick and it's revealed to him by God that he's going to die. Hezekiah prays to God for a reprieve of death and God grants it. Fifteen years added to Hezekiah's life. Isaiah is sent to deliver the message and along with the message he's given the choice of a sign. As a demonstration of the truth of this matter, the shadow on the sundial can go forward 10 degrees or backwards 10 degrees. And Hezekiah chooses backwards 10 degrees, and the sign occurs. Isaiah makes a polstice of figs. He uses a tool to heal Hezekiah, and Hezekiah recovers from his illness. Now, something occurs at this sign because the shadow on the sundial moving backwards. Now, something occurs at this sign because the shadow on the sundial moving backwards, it's not something that's isolated to only Jerusalem or Judah or even Israel. This is a sign that would be seen by the entire world at least the entire world of the known day. And in the far-off country, there are men who study the heavens for signs regularly. It's their practice. Men from the east. Men from Babylon. These men, they see this sign, and they hear the stories of the defeat of Assyria, and they hear the stories of the sudden recovery of Hezekiah, and they think to themselves, we must know more of this. And so they send a delegation to Hezekiah to discover what exactly is going on in this tiny country of Judah that they can defeat a mighty nation like Assyria and save their king when he is so near to death. Not just these things, because these things, while amazing, they're not nearly as amazing as witnessing the sun go backwards in the sky ten degrees. And so the delegation comes to Hezekiah from Babylon to discover what has occurred. And what does Hezekiah do? He shows them his wealth. He shows them his military might. He shows them all of the wonders of Israel. Hezekiah shows them everything in his kingdom, except for his God. Hezekiah takes all of the glory that was due to God, and he places it on his wealth and his power and the blessings that he has been granted. And as a result, according to Isaiah, it's because of this act that Babylon then comes and conquers Judah and takes them into captivity less than 200 years later. And these men from the nations they had come to Babylon to ask about the great signs and wonders that were given and Hezekiah takes all of the credit for himself. He then places all of the glory on his status as chosen of God and he does not give any glory to God in the eyes of the nations. As numbers says God desires to be sanctified in the eyes of the people and he wasn't. The honor was taken by the human representative. So how are Moses and Hezekiah the same? They're both men chosen by God to lead Israel, to deliver them at a time of great oppression from a foreign nation. They're both righteous before God and keeping his commands and doing his will, being his representative. They're both given signs, they both do wonders, and both know that God is king. And yet, and yet when they were pressed, They take the glory due to God on themselves, rather than passing it on to Him. In their heart, at some point, even these righteous men did not treat God as the king of their lives. And this is human nature. We're easily distracted with our own perceived importance, and we begin to believe that we are special in some way. Now, I tend to think that Moses believed the staff itself was invested with power. He saw the staff as a talisman of power. And when God wished to be honored and not the staff and not Moses and Aaron, Moses failed. He was to hold the staff and the people were to see that the staff itself was not the source of the power that saved them, that it too was simply a tool and that God's power does not necessarily need a tool. Hezekiah, for his part, he took comfort in his own role as chosen and blessed and then began to believe that his power and his wealth was something that mattered. And when pressed by the nations, he gave glory to his own wealth, rather than giving glory to God. This is human nature. This human nature, and it's something that Joshua recognized in his final speech to Israel. After the conquest of Israel, Joshua gathers all the tribes to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal in the city of Shechem, and they recite the blessings and the curses, and they record the law on the stones and plaster, and... At the very end of his speech, one of the last things Joshua says to the people is found in Joshua 24, verse 14 through 25. He says, And now fear Hashem, serve him in perfection and in truth, and put away the mighty ones which your fathers served beyond the river in Mitzrayim, and serve Hashem. And if it seems evil in your eyes to serve Hashem, choose for yourself this dame whom you are going to serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that are beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But I and my house, we serve Hashem. And the people answered and said, Far be it from us to forsake Hashem, to serve other mighty ones. For Hashem our God is he who has brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who did those great signs before our eyes, and has guarded us in all the way that we went among all the people and through whom we passed. And Hashem drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites who dwell in the land. And we too serve Hashem, for he is our God. And then Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve Hashem, for he is a holy God, a jealous God is he. He does not bear with your transgressions and with your sins. If you forsake Hashem and shall serve gods of a stranger, then he shall turn back and do you evil and consume you after he has been good to you. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we serve Hashem. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves, and you have chosen Hashem for yourselves to serve him. And they said, Witnesses! And now put away the gods of the stranger which are in your midst, and incline your ear to Hashem your God. And the people said to Joshua, Hashem our God we serve, and his voice we obey. Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and he laid on them a law and a judgment in Shechem. You are unable to serve Hashem, he says. He is a holy God and a jealous God. He does not bear with your transgressions and sins. And still the people declare that God is their king with their words, but their actions speak a different story. And here, on Yom Teruah, we declared Hashem as king. Is it perhaps, are we doing the same thing as Israel with our actions? Hashem is our king, he is our God, we will serve him with all of our heart, we declare alongside the Israel of the conquest. But then as soon as Joshua dies, they stopped. Israel forgets before even a single generation has passed and they turn to serving gods from foreign nations. And several times in Judges, the phrase is used, in those days there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But wait, we commonly refer to the form of government that existed at this time of Israel's history as a theocracy. That's a form of government in which there is no human king. God was king. But Judges states that there was no king in the land. But there was king, we want to say. There was Hashem. He was their king. But they didn't recognize this, and it led them to doing what was right to themselves, rather than doing what was right according to God. They forgot that God was king, just as Moses did in a time of weakness just as Hezekiah did in a time of strength, and I would submit just as we all do to one degree or another. Each of us does what is right in our own eyes, seeking our own pleasure in one way or another, and we pay little attention to what God would have us do. In fact, our society has completely lost sight of what it means to serve, and this hinders each of us as we are products of our society. What does it mean to be a servant, to be a slave even? These terms, they've been turned into dirty words that we dare not speak, and so we barely even acknowledge them when Scripture speaks of them. We truly don't understand these concepts at all. I admit, I'm the same way. I don't understand service as I should. Well, recently my son has been reading a book for literature class. It's a a classic book. It's named Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. I'm sure some of you are familiar with this book. Uh, The story goes something like this. And I'll warn you now, spoiler warning, but since the book was written in 1864, if you haven't read it yet, you kind of deserve to have it spoiled a bit. So in the story, the main protagonist, the professor, and his nephew Axel, and they discover a coded message from someone. And after deciphering the message, they discover that a man has made a journey to the center of the earth nearly two centuries before them. And so they start out on a journey of exploration to follow in his footsteps. The entrance to this path is in Iceland, and so they travel there. And when they get to Iceland, they hire a guide, a man named Hans, and he'll take them wherever they seek to go for only three marks a week. So these men, they travel for some time above ground to get to the crater of the Icelandic volcano that has the entrance to the pathway that leads to the center of the earth. They enter the volcano and they begin their journey. Well, one of the first challenges that the group faces as they make their way is they come to a fork in the path, and they're not sure which path to take, and they end up taking the wrong one. For three days, they continue on into great caverns of coal without a drop of water in the air or the ground and they find that they are at the end of their water supply. Uh, they make a decision to begin the three-day journey back to the fork in the road, and this time they do it without water. Now, they know that when they get to the fork in the path, they have the option of trying to escape and find water to continue on into what is likely to be certain death down the untraveled path. Up to this point in the journey, they'd met with no water at all, so the situation is quite desperate. When they get to the cavern with the fork, they collapse and they're too weak to continue. And a touching scene occurs here between the professor and his nephew before an argument arises. You see, Axel wants to return to the surface. He's convinced that to continue on is certain death. He's done with this trip. He just wants out. But the professor is not willing to quit. Lack of water, parched throats, and no hope of more. It's a mere setback to him. And so they quarrel for a time. After a moment of bickering, Axel goes to Hans, the third member, to break the tie and to attempt to get Hans to take his side, because any other choice is sure death. But Hans doesn't even allow Axel to make his point. Before he can go far in his pleading, Hans jerks his hands out of Axel's and points to the professor and says a single word. Master. You see, Hans understood something that we don't something that's difficult for modern humans to accept when you have a master and you are the servant when your master gives a command you comply regardless of what it means for you as an individual if the master says that we continue on into certain death we continue on no arguing no conjoling the will of the master supersedes our own no matter what that means for me as an individual. This is the idea of servanthood in the ancient Near East. The slave works only and solely for the benefit of his master, not simply for the benefit of his master, but as a representative of his master in the character and authority of his master. The servant doesn't matter at all. The servant is simply a tool. This perspective is one that Yeshua speaks on in some of his parables. So we're going to read one. In Matthew 25, we read the parable of the talents. And most of us, we're pretty familiar with this parable, right? Use your talents for God, we're told. And that's not what it means. In Matthew 25, 13-30, Watch therefore, because you do not know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. For it is like a man going from home who called his own servants and delivered his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one to each according to his own ability, and he went from home. And he who had received the five talents went and worked with them and made another five talents. In the same way with the two also, he gained two more. But he who had received the one went away, and he dug in the ground, and he hid the silver of his master. And after a long time the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came and he brought five other talents, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. See, I have gained five more talents beside them. And the master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a little, and I shall set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Then he who had received two talents came and said, Master, you delivered to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents beside them. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You are trustworthy over a little. I shall set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent also came and said, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed, and being afraid, I went and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. And his master answering said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed. Then you should have put my silver with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him, and give it to him who possesses ten talents. For to every one who possesses more shall be given, and he shall have overflowingly. But from him who does not possess even what he possesses shall be taken away. And throw the worthless servant out into the outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the master goes away and leaves his servant with a portion of goods, right? One gets five talents. Uh, If it was silver, it's 75 pounds of silver, today's price is approximately $92,000. The other one gets two talents. Again, if it's silver, it's approximately $40,000 worth, and one gets one talent, or $20,000. Now, we have to remember that these are not modern people, and so capitalism, it's not even a thought. hasn't even occurred to anyone yet. Market economies doesn't exist. The ancient world operated on a zero-sum economy. Scarcity was a fact of life. When goods ran out, they were gone. There was no more. Now this means that in order to gain money in the ancient mind, you had to take money from someone else. For a rich man to get richer, he had to take money from those who were poorer than him. Now the servants, the first and the second, they go out and they double their master's money. They know their master and they operate in the manner of their master. The third servant calls out his character in verse 24. And the one who had received the one talent also came to him and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Now consider this. These men were not being good people. They were not caring for the poor. They were, to the listener, exploiting the poor. They weren't feeding the hungry, they were taking food from the mouths of the hungry in order to enrich their master. The good and wise servants were acting in the character of their master, despite how good he was, and despite what they themselves may have desired. They knew their master's reputation as a hard man, who reaps where he has not sown and gathered where he has not scattered seed. And they replicate this image of the master, out into the world with their master's money. The final servant, however, he's given his master's money. He knows his master's reputation, but rather than taking any risk with the money, he does the safe thing for himself. He buries the money in the ground. In ancient East, it's not a bad idea to save money. This was thought of wise and reliable way to store wealth. But the third servant, he doesn't put aside his own good his own desires, his own safety, simply because he wants to save himself. He thinks only of himself rather than acting in the way of his master. And when the master returns, it's this man that's called wicked and is cast out. He didn't steal. He didn't cheat. He didn't exploit others. He did the right thing in the story, but he was cast out. Why? Because he did not act in the manner of his master. He was not a good servant. He thought of himself first, and his master came second. Now Yeshua's audience would have picked up on this. They understood the expectation placed on a servant. Hans understood this, that when you place yourself under a master, the master calls the shots. You must decrease in all of your time and energy. It's no longer spent on personal. Betterment, but rather on honoring and lifting up the name, the character, reputation, authority, and qualities of the master. Taking his goods that he entrusts to you and then using them for his benefit. We don't get it. We want to do what's right in our own eyes. And for many, we serve no masters but ourselves, our families, our bellies. Our bank accounts, our pride, our fame, our personal gratification or pleasure. We don't serve the master as we claim to serve him. As Israel declared before Joshua, and as we declared on Yom Teruah, they declared with their mouths that they would serve Hashem in one breath, and then in the next, they didn't. Some men came to Yeshua to try to trick him into declaring himself an enemy of Caesar. Uh, they approached him and they asked him a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And his response to them was, show me a coin. Now this was a specific coin used for the purpose of paying taxes. And what he says next should make our blood run cold. Whose image is on the coin? And whose inscription is it? And why did he ask this question? He's pointing out that the coin itself bears an image. He's not talking about the picture. He specifically says image. He's alluding to the command to make no graven image. And then his follow-up question, whose inscription is on the coin? Well, the tax coin was a special denomination of coin, and there are some that have been found. So whose picture was on the coin? Well, Tiberius Caesar. We know it. We've seen it. What is the inscription on this coin? Well, on one side, it says Pontiff Maximus. High priest. And on the other side, it says Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, the son of God. And so Yeshua responds to them Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. His image was money, and to those who served him, they served money in a way, and give to God what is God's. And what is God's image? We are. Yeshua was telling his audience to give themselves to God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua says the following in Matthew 6 verse 24, says no one is able to serve two masters, for either he shall hate the one and love the other, or he shall cleave to one and despise the other. You are not able to serve both Elohim and Mammon. Because of this I say to you, do not worry about your life and what you shall eat or drink, or about your body or what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Don't worry about your basic necessities, because when you begin to worry about obtaining these things, you begin to serve either the things themselves, or you begin to serve the means available in your society to obtain those things. You can't serve both God and money. But I don't serve money, you say, as you work 12 hours a day and leave no time for God. As you wear yourself out during the week and you're unable to even move on the Sabbath. As your body breaks down under the strain of your job and sickness prevents you from worship. What Yeshua is pointing out is that worry itself is a sickness of heart and it will lead you to serving the wrong master. To choosing the evil master because that master gives you five marks a week rather than just three. It will lead you to picking up your entire family and moving across many states for a few extra dollars a month, leaving behind all that you know. It will lead you to enslaving yourself to metaphorical pharaoh because he will give you food on your table and money in your wallet, leeks and melons that you know where they're coming from. Let's face it, who are we working for? Are we working for a car payment? Working for a house? Are we working so that we can afford to speak to the air and have music played for us? Are we working so that we have a hundred channels of trash to watch in our few spare moments? Are we working so that we can do good things in the future, but then we never have any time with our family now? Are we working with the thought that one day we might be able to give back? But right now, no, right now we can't give at all. Now I can look out in the world and, and see a lot of people there. I've spoken to a lot of people. I know a lot of people. And I feel safe in saying that there is a lot of worry in this world. But our king is merciful. He is just. And he's kind. Our king has promised us that if we seek his kingdom first, he will give us everything that we need to accomplish his will for his kingdom. He will equip us to do the task that he has called us to do. And if we're successful in modeling His image and His qualities, and we're faithful with just a little, then He'll trust us with more and more. As long as we always remember it's His. It's not ours. It's not for us to spend on our own pleasure. And then if we have some left over, well, then we'll use that for His kingdom. Rather, it's all His. It's His to build His kingdom with and to use for the purpose of His kingdom. And if we are faithful, we may be blessed by Him, with some left over to be used on our own pleasure. And when we receive His blessing for faithful service, regardless of how much or how little, it will come with peace, not worry. Some of you out there are consumed by worry daily, and it's destroying you. For 30 days leading up to Yom Teruah is the time of repentance, It's the season of repentance, and for 10 days Between Yom Chiruwa and Yom Kippur, those are the ten days of awe. The time of repentance doubles. I want to challenge each and every one of you. If you have a worry that's eating you up, take it to God. Describe your worry to Him and place it fully in His hands. Actually act as if He is your master rather than simply paying lip service to the idea. Allow him to determine your future, your place in society, your wealth level. And if this area where your worry is greatest is indeed his will for you, he'll give you peace and faith to continue on. If it's not of him, though, your worry will continue. It'll even grow. It'll become more consuming. And if the worry grows, well then then comes a very difficult task. Then you have to lay yourself bare and ask God, if this is not of you, if this is not your will, what is? This may mean giving up on something that you see as your great hope for the future. This may mean letting go of something that you've worked on for months or years. This may mean taking a step of faith into the unknown, even into poverty for a time. It may mean doing the risky thing, the dangerous thing, even the stupid or the foolish thing in the eyes of everyone around you. And it may mean that you yourself lose honor for a time and enter into a time of shame before others. But I promise you, as someone who's going through it, it's worth it. He is faithful. He will provide your every need. He will equip you to do His will. So the question is, Is he truly your king? Are you willing to let go of the individual will and submit to his? Or will you declare that your will is the best? And When you're in a place of need and worry, will you grasp for the talisman of your job or your skills or your bank account or your knowledge to save you? Will you declare, shall I save us from certain destruction before your family and your friends? And when people ask of your success, will you show them your riches, your car, your house, your clothes, your ability, your strength, and even if you don't outright say it, at the very least imply that these are the things that saved you? If we believe that God is truly king, it is incumbent upon us to treat him as such. And the gods of men, their legion... They're to be found in every aspect of our lives, around every corner, and looking for them is super easy. It's natural. Anger, pride, deceit, envy, greed, fear, gluttony, lust, sloth. Each and every one of you hearing my voice is controlled by, at minimum, one of those. They control us in our natural state. And without a purposeful attention, they will rule over us. And when these sins, when they win in our lives, we are, in fact, making that sin our God. And our nature becomes God in that moment because we're failing to live up to the nature of our Master. But we're not a people who are controlled by our passions. Or are we? We're not a people who are controlled by our sins Or are we? We are not a people with a will of our own If God is truly our king Then our will is something that must be sacrificed And it's our role to work in his image when he is away and To live out his nature for the world to see And if we're successful when he returns We will hear those blessed words Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master.